You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our reading this afternoon is from Ephesians chapter 2. It's the verses 11 through 22. If you were here this morning, then you'll probably remember that we looked at Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5, and that's our the same text for this afternoon. And it's in connection with that text, that vision of Isaiah, that we read these words from the pen of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants and of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Jesus Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Thus far, our reading from Ephesians will now turn back to the Old Testament, to the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we come to Isaiah chapter 2, We come to this radical change, this complete 180 turn from what we read about in chapter 1 of Isaiah. If you were here when we considered Isaiah chapter 1, or if you have any recollection of Isaiah chapter 1 at all, even now, you could probably 
quickly look at it and discover that Isaiah chapter 1 is all about the sin of God's people. The sin of the people of Judah. And how it has corrupted them head to toe. It's affected every aspect of their lives together. And it's a sin against which they seem to have no resources within themselves. So that was chapter 1. A chapter that laid bare the reality of the total depravity of the people of Judah. But no sooner has Isaiah written that chapter, which sort of serves as a title of the whole book, then everything turns when he receives this vision from God. He communicates this stirring and profound and wonderful vision of the future for God's people and In spite of everything that's been said in Isaiah chapter 1, it's not a a vision of destruction and despair. It's a vision of, of hope and glory and peace and worship. And as he gives this vision to the people, his message is clear. It's singular and it's this. Now worship God. Leave behind your sin and worship God. And so as we consider this, these verses this afternoon, we'll consider it under this theme that Isaiah's vision of the gospel age is a call to worship. His vision of the gospel age is a call to worship. And we'll, we'll consider what Isaiah sees. So we'll go through the whole text and look at what exactly is he looking at here. And then we'll circle back and go through it all again and say, what are the realities of the gospel that, that this vision points to? And then finally, we'll come back to the beginning again and go through the whole, all five verses and say, now what is the call to worship that we see in this vision? And so we turn our attention to the vision that Isaiah sees. And as I mentioned this morning, it's interesting that what it literally says is that Isaiah saw the word, the word that Isaiah saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So it's the word of God. It's God's revelation. But but Isaiah is seeing this. And what is he seeing? Well, it's clear as he lays it out. This is a this is visual. This is a vision. This is something that he's seeing with his eyes. And the first thing that he sees is that the, the mountain of the temple of the Lord is established as chief, as first among the mountains. Now mountains were in those days understood to be the dwelling place of the gods. The Greeks had their gods on Olympus throughout Israel, there were gods supposedly living up on the mountain, so that's where they would build their high places, their, their, their altars, and they called them the high places. You read about that all through the Old Testament when Israel is turning to Baal or to Asherah. But of course, we know that, that Israel had their center of worship on a mountain as well. It wasn't only the nations who built their temple on a mountain. Israel did as well under God's command. They built the temple in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, on the highest point of Jerusalem. Uh, the highest place in the city that, that towered over the Kidron Valley underneath. And so it was quite imposing where the temple was in Jerusalem. 
But yet, so the, the temple was in this high place in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem itself was a city within Judah and Israel, depending whether they were two separate nations or whether they were together at different times. But, but Israel and Judah, or either one of them, in the grand scheme of things, were not much. These were not the powerful nations, especially at the time that Isaiah is prophesying. They're not the powerful nations in the world. And so the, the Mount of Jerusalem was, was nothing compared to, to what existed in the great city, the great cities of the Assyrians and of the Egyptians and of the other nations around them. Israel was nothing. But what Isaiah sees is that this mountain of the Lord's temple, this Mount Zion is lifted up and it becomes higher, it grows. And in comparison, all the other mountains with all those other gods, they shrink, they shrink down so that the mountain of God's temple is foremost, it's chief. That's not to suggest that God is the greatest and there's many other gods beside. The point is that God will be exalted and all the other gods or so-called gods will be humiliated. And God himself will be acknowledged as the great and the awesome God. And as God is acknowledged, there is this response among the nations of the world. And these nations were the ones who were building their temples to false gods who weren't serving the Lord. The nations would have understood that the Lord was the God, not of the whole world, but of Israel. They had their God, and Assyria had their God, and Egypt, Egypt had their God, or in most cases, their gods. So every nation had their gods, and, and none of the other nations worshipped the Lord, Yahweh, the God who had called Israel to be his own nation. But what Isaiah sees here is that these these false worshiping nations leave aside their false gods and they come to the mountain of God's temple to worship there in this this gravity defying stream of nations that that flows not down but upwards toward the Lord why are they going there well for the same reason that anyone would go up to the temple if you went up to the temple you were going up to worship in fact, even that word going up throughout the Old Testament has, has connotations of worship when it's mentioned. This is what the nations are coming to do. They're coming to worship God. And as they come, they express together their desire to learn and to grow. They say in verse 3, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and He will teach us His way so that we may walk in His paths. Yes, these these nations which had never had any concern for the ways of the Lord. In fact, they had lived in rebellion against the Lord. They hated the people of Israel. They hated the people of Judah. They desecrated the temple, or they, they would go on to desecrate the temple when they would have a chance. Constantly warring against the people of God. These nations now are coming to God to learn. They're coming to worship and they're coming in humility saying, we don't know anything. We want to learn from you. You are the source of truth and wisdom. And so Zion, that mountain where God's temple sits and Jerusalem become becomes the source of of that which the nations seek the word of God. So as the nations come up to Jerusalem 
to learn about the ways of the Lord, Jerusalem and Zion becomes the, the source of teaching to these nations. And so you have this, this stream of nations going up and this stream of teaching and preaching of the word of God and of the law of God flowing out and feeding this desire of the nations. And what's the effect of this? Well, it's striking. It's dramatic. God's word, as, as the nations are filled with it, inspires them to peace. These often warring nations pursue not war, but, but productivity. They beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning hooks. They're, they're gonna turn aside from fighting against each other and they're gonna get together and work with each other. Build up culture. Build up prosperity. Now, this was a politically unstable time that Isaiah was writing, and he began to write in a fairly politically stable time under the reign of Isaiah. But as his, as the time of his prophecies continued on, it became more and more unstable, not only for the people of Judah, but for the whole world, Middle Eastern world around him. And so this would have been unthinkable that the nations would, would put aside their weapons and, and get along and work together. Perhaps this is the most unthinkable part of the vision. Perhaps you can abstractly think about nations worshiping God. But there's nothing abstract about nations ceasing to fight each other. This is life. This is life as Isaiah knew it. And this is life as we know it as well. Can you remember a time that there has not been mention of war somewhere in this world? Even now, in in our time of relative peace, war rages in the world, and the threat of war is always on the horizon. Whether it's Syria, or North Korea, or Iran, or so many other countries, war is what nations do. But as, as Isaiah sees it, no longer. Instead of war, they're going to make peace. They're going to turn their weapons into implements of farming. Many see here a return to, to Eden. Eden was a garden. Eden was a place where you needed that pruning hook and that plowshare. And so these, these nations are, are going back from the, the fighting that began in Genesis 4 and the friction between Cain and Abel. They're, they're going back be, before the curse to a time of peace, of productivity, and prosperity. And so this is Isaiah's vision. This is the word of the Lord as he sees it. So what do we make of this? What is this vision? Many have come to this vision, and they have seen in Isaiah chapter 2, and especially verse 4, they've seen a call to, to pacifism. They've said, see, We should not pursue war. Nations should not go to war against nations. They've seen a a political roadmap. This is the way forward for Canada or for the United States or for whatever country. This is what we are called to as nations in this world. So what is this vision? Is it a political utopia? Or perhaps you think this is as Christians our future hope. This is what we are not experiencing, but yet we long for when all wars will cease. 
And that is, of course, a time that we long for. But Isaiah's prophecy is for him a, a future event. But for us, it's not. It's in fact a present reality. It's a present reality. What Isaiah sees in this vision is what we live in today. When we live in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's consider the gospel realities that this vision unfolds. The exaltation of God, the the mountain of the Lord's temple being established and, and being chief among the mountains of the world. So clearly, in this vision, something dramatic has happened. And so what is it that this is pointing to? Well, it is pointing to the the ascension of Jesus Christ, who himself is the temple of the Lord, and through whom we, the church, are being built together to become the temple of the Lord. What this is talking about when God's temple is established as chief among the temples is The greatest story ever told. The story about Jesus Christ, the Son of God becoming incarnate, living a perfect life under under persecution and suffering, living a life of love, of service, and of obedience to God to the point of giving up His life on the cross, and then being buried in a grave in shame and humiliation. But he did not stay there. No, he rose from the dead. He once again in the flesh, in our flesh, walked on this earth. And not only did he walk on this earth, but God raised him up to his right hand in heaven, higher than any imaginable temple in this world. Jesus Christ was lifted up, as the Gospel of John says, for all to see, so that all in this world would look to him. And find their salvation, find their hope and eternal life, reconciliation with God in him and in him alone. The temple in Jerusalem, that temple built by human hands, was destroyed in 70 AD. It was desecrated and taken apart brick by brick by the Romans when they came and conquered Jerusalem. But we have a temple that endures, a temple in heaven, a temple at the right hand of God, a place of worship exalted higher than any other place. We have Jesus Christ. And so God was exalted in Jesus Christ. And what happened as a result of Jesus Christ's ascension to the right hand, the next step as as this history of redemption unfolds, is that the gospel goes out to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's the gospel reality of the nation streaming to this temple. We see that when the gospel goes out, when the, when God sends his spirit at Pentecost and the spirit brings the word of God and this gospel goes beyond the borders of Israel and hurdles to the ends of the earth. What did Paul say in our reading to his to the Ephesians as he wrote to them? He said, remember, you were apart from God. You are are of those nations and so are all of you. You're not, at least as far as I know, any of you 
members of the house of Israel by birth. Jews, ethnic Jews. No, we are all Gentiles. And this is what Paul writes to the Ephesians. Gentiles by birth, separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, without hope and without God in the world. But the enemies of God turned to him in faith and obedience. Why? Because of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the simple message that the apostles brought, that the church brought. It was simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. They said, he's been lifted up. He's been raised up. Look, look, consider it. He was raised from the dead. Look to him. He's at the right hand of God. Consider him. That's the message that they went to through all the world. And that's the message that was received by faith as all the nations began to stream to Jesus Christ. And they desired when they came to learn the ways of the Lord, just like these. Come, let us go and he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. They wanted to know, how do we live? You see that in the, in the book of Acts, consistently throughout. You can think of the, the conference in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Or you can think of Paul's many letters written to churches full of Gentiles. And they're always answering the question that are, that's coming from the Gentiles. Okay, we know this gospel. Now, how do we live? Teach us how to live and to follow the ways of the Lord. And as they come with this desire, what does the church do? What do the apostles do? What does the church of the New Testament do? What does the church do today? They instruct. They teach. They preach the word of God. So that as the nations flow up to the temple to worship the ascended Christ, the ministry of the word flows out from Jesus through his church to all those who are coming to worship him. And what happens as they come together? They come in peace. They come in peace. Reading this chapter, these verses this past week, and hearing about the events that are happening now in Syria, discussions going on within the G20, within the United Nations, discussions about chemical warfare and revolution and, and justified responses and all these things, then Reading verse 4 in this piece, I thought, I can't wait for this to be true. I can't wait for this vision to come true. And so I was looking ahead for some future, even perhaps distant future time. And certainly God's word does teach us to look ahead to a distant time when all wars will cease. But brothers and sisters, we don't have to wait to some distant future to see the reality of peace in our world. This peace has come in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 14, Paul says, For Christ himself is our peace, who made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by dividing, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. 
His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in his one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. It's through Jesus Christ that peace is possible, real, lasting peace. When people from every tribe and tongue and nation can come together and and truly have peace, truly put aside their animosity and join together in unity, the unity of worship. Yes, God so loved this world and all these nations warring with each other that he sent his one and only son and through him there is peace. And so, brothers and sisters, let's circle back one more time and hear the call that comes to us in this vision. As Isaiah says in verse 5, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In, in seeing this vision, let us now walk in what this vision lays before us. So this vision is a call to worship. It's a call to worship now. It's not a call just to hope for some future reality. It's a call to worship now. For the people of Judah, they were called to worship even as they waited for this gospel to be made real. And for us who know this gospel of Jesus Christ, how much more reason don't we have to join together in worship? Jesus Christ, the mountain of the Lord's temple, has been established. If Jesus Christ has been raised up to the right hand of God, If he is there, if he has risen from the dead and God has exalted him and glorified him for all the world to see, then it follows from that, that he must be first in your life as well. If he has been exalted by God, then he must be exalted by you. He has to be first in your life. Is the shrine of Jesus Christ the highest shrine in your heart? Is that the one that gets all the attention? Is he the Lord and the master of your internet? Of your TV? Of your job site? Of your thoughts? Of your parenting? Of your relationships? The Son of God who conquered sin is at the right hand of God. Are you trusting in him there? This is a call to worship him because he is exalted. And when Jesus Christ is exalted, then the nations flow to him. Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to understand, we need to believe this, is incredibly attractive. It's incredibly attractive. It's foolish, yes, but it's attractive because it takes all the burden off of ourselves. It requires us not to do, but to believe. And so it must be the gospel of Jesus Christ which continues to make the church attractive. It must be the gospel, brothers and sisters, in everything that we do, in what we preach and in what we sing and in how we love and in how we live and in all of life. It has to be the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else. If we, the church, are to be attractive. No. If we, the church, are to make Jesus Christ attractive in this world. When Jesus Christ and his great work is lifted up, it draws people in. This is how God has determined it to be. And so, brothers and sisters, are the nations coming? Are the nations coming and filling our pews? Are the nations coming to worship God among us? Let's dig deeper into the gospel of grace. Let's exalt Jesus higher. That he might shine in this world. Because that's what people want. That's what people want. People are burdened by sin, whether they know it or not. This is not what the marketing surveys say. This is not what human wisdom supposes, that what people want is simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's what Isaiah saw when he envisioned what the word of the Lord. He saw people from every tribe and language and flooding to the church to learn. And they wanted to know the ways of the Lord. They wanted to know the word of God. Well, the word of God has been made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. They wanted to know how now shall we live? And those people, first of all, the people, first of all, who are coming to the mount of God's temple, to Jesus Christ to learn, is us. Is us. We need to ask ourselves now and continually, have we lost that love? Do we still desire to go to Jesus Christ and to learn from him? To learn from his word. To learn how to live and how to apply his ways to our life. It's no accident that seeking to hear the word of God and and streaming to God's temple and worship are, are side by side here. The two go hand in hand. The one is a response to the other. If you aren't hearing God's word, if you aren't feeding on Jesus Christ, then how are you going to respond in praise? This is why the word of God is central in our worship service. And this is why the word of God has to be central in our lives. So that we can respond in worship. And so let us keep that in the center. This afternoon, following this worship service at 4.30 sharp, you have the opportunity to think and to pray and to consider again about Bible study as we kick off a new season of Bible study here in our congregation? Are you a member of a Bible study? Do you spend time in God's word with your brothers and sisters? It's an important part of life in the church. Make a commitment to study the word of God from now on. In this season to come, make a commitment to feed at the stream of God's word as it flows from Jesus Christ. And this is for all of us. It's for our oldest members. It's for our youngest members. Remember our theme text of home visits last year, 2 Timothy 3 verse 15. As Paul writes to Timothy, remember how from infancy, from infancy, you have known the scriptures starts at a very young age. Some people say that reformed people 
grow immune to the power of the gospel because we become, we become so saturated. We become oversaturated with the Bible. It's not new to us. It's not exciting. And, and so maybe the, the thought is you need to put that off or sometimes kind of ignore the Bible or something. Don't believe that for a minute. Teach your children. Saturate yourself with the word of God from infancy and beyond. We don't become immune to the power of the gospel when we're being saturated in it. We become immune to the power of the gospel when we close our ears and we stop hearing it. And we stop seeing Jesus Christ exalted at the right hand of God. And so vitally important to our study of God's word is the preaching and the teaching ministry of the church. As the nations are going up to learn, the word of God is coming out from the church. Isaiah says, the law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And you can just hear the apostle Paul asking in Romans, how can they hear unless by the preaching of the word? How will they know unless someone teaches them? We teach in this church, in so many different ways. Vacation Bible School, Christianity Explored, Gems Cadets, Coffee Break, and Catechism. We need to continue to teach. We need to continue to seek and to pray that our teaching would go out as well to our community. We need to ask ourselves, and perhaps sometimes critically, is this teaching reaching the ears of those who, who now are enemies of the cross? So that they can be reconciled to God as the Spirit uses His means of grace. As the instruction goes out, the people come in. That's what Isaiah sees. Instruction goes out and the people come in. And so we need to keep this instruction, this preaching, and this teaching as central as we spread the gospel, as we evangelize in our world. And finally, this instruction in the ways of the Lord is what builds true peace, true and lasting peace. Really, where in the world do the nations come together in true unity of purpose and worship? There is only one place in the world. There is only one place where the nations meaningfully and truly come together in unity of purpose and worship It's in the church of Jesus Christ. And it's there alone. It can happen that you you get into thinking little of the church. You think the church is small. The church is a place full of sinners. It is. But the church of Jesus Christ is not small. The church of Jesus Christ is Catholic. It's worldwide. It is throughout this world of of people from many tribes and tongues and nations. And we pray more and more all the time. And when these people come together to worship Jesus Christ, they come together in peace. And so the gospel calls us to be peacemakers as this gospel goes out. To be those who pursue forgiveness and reconciliation and righteousness. To pursue it at the ends of the world among the nations and to pursue it close to home, within our families, within our friendships. To pursue it in our church, where the peace of Christ reigns. To pursue it in our community, where we need, in our community, the community of Langley, we need more loving and serving citizens committed to loving their neighbors and to making peace. 
Our world needs this. We live in a world at war. We live in a world under the burden and under the effects, living them out every day of sin. Our world needs peace. Our world needs the gospel. Our world needs to know that Jesus Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God. That he's already conquered death. He's already conquered sin. And he is Lord of the universe. And so, brothers and sisters, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.